0: Hey everyone, welcome to Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacey. Hey friends, I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us today as we continue our journey through season 14. <clears throat> it don't come easy. That's the theme of our episode today with the popular 1971 hit from Ringo Starr's solo career. Who is... The focus of my profile today. It's Indeed. the last of the Fab Four that we have not covered. Yes. The f- Nothing f- The was final,
1: easy. The final 25%. We've now achieved 100% of Beatles.
0: Huzzah! This (laughs) week, you're bringing us a different kind of a don't come easy, Stacey.
1: Yeah, this is uh, Marvel's Hawkeye. Jeremy Renner has had a a very, very, very ugly post-divorce period with his ex-wife of 10 months.
0: (laughs) That's Jeremy Renner. Did I say that? Yeah, nothing, nothing coming easy today. Before we start our episode, (laughs) I do have a magic mirror that's sliding out very easily with some very special names of our newest supporters on Patreon in it. Let's give some big thanks and praise and shout outs.
1: Yes, thank you so much for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Ellen H, Darcy V, Amanda
0: W, Kristen S, Tori M, and Alicia P. Holy cats, we have two new super supporters this week. Kim R and Amanda F. Amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All of our Patreon supporters getting early ad-free content, bonus episodes. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your support. Definitely. And to you for coming to tune in today. Yep. Stacy, if we're not going to make it any harder, what should we do?
1: We'd better go, go, go. Oh, Alicia. This one's been a long time coming, right? Because we've covered three of four we have
0: we are here today for the last of the fab four <laughs> the
1: last 25 percent <laughs> i've
0: got the trashy divorces of ringo star today history's greatest drummer he's a talented drummer sure remembered as one of the good ones in history but the story is really quite a ride it's very nice then it's very very trashy but there's a little bit of a redemption arc yeah. at the end we do love those it don't come easy. Okay. This is the fourth of the Beatles that we're going to cover in our Trashy Divorces purview. Let's talk about Ringo Starr. who was born Richard Starkey on July 7th, 1940 in Liverpool, England. Not the greatest of childhoods. Richard's father leaves him and his mother when he's about four years old. Mom Support she and Richard with multiple jobs, cleaning houses, waitressing, kind of tough. Poor Richard is nearly going to die when he's six because he contracts peritonitis after he has his appendix removed. Yikes. And he's so sick that he's in the hospital, not for a week, not for a month, but for an entire year. Wow. Before he recovers. That, Oof.
1: In the 40s, too, that must have been miserable.
0: Obviously, causes a little bit of a delay for our young Richard. He requires a lot of extra help to catch him back up in school. I mean, if you're out of school for a year. Just as the kid is getting back on track, he's diagnosed with tuberculosis. Good lord. Richard then (laughs) spends two years in a sanatorium. Um... Now, I know that seems really bad. It does. It really does. And I'm not saying any of it was good. It was very, very Mm -hmm. bad. But the unlucky illnesses in his childhood is likely one of the reasons that he becomes a famous member of the Beatles and a drummer. During his time at the sanatorium, the staff will try to distract all the patients by having them form a band. Hey. So it is in this sanatorium band That Richard first plays the drums that aren't really drums. They give him a wooden mallet and just let him beat it against the cabinets next to his bed. Wow. But no matter. Richard develops a love of percussion. Let me beat shit and make loud noises. I mean, at that point, that has to be the most therapeutic thing in the world. Well, Ringo, isn't Ringo yet, he's still Richard, Richard. doesn't return to school, but instead begins apprenticing... At a few different jobs and will continue to work on music. I think school has sort of left him behind.
1: I think, yeah, you miss three years in a staggered way. That's tough.
0: No worries. Richard's going to join a band in 1959 called Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Good name. Good name. Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Richard joins as their drummer. And this is the time that he decides that the name Richard Starkey isn't Quite catchy enough for a drummer, so he will adopt his stage name of Ringo Starr. It is an improvement, I have to say. Now, John and Paul, Lennon and McCartney, had already formed their band back in Liverpool in 1957. Paul's the bassist. John is the singer. They have a guitarist, George Harrison. He plays lead. And a musician named Stuart Sutcliffe will join the band and Mm -hmm. take over as the band's lead bass guitarist. In 1959, these guys cohesed together and become known as the Beatles. But it doesn't take too long. Summer 1960, Sutcliffe's out. He's going to leave the Beatles because he wants to go to art school. What a life choice. This band isn't going to work out. Who's ever heard of a future in music? So a drummer (laughs) named Pete Best will join the band. Now the band, gaining popularity... This is the point where they take on Brian Epstein as their manager, getting us up to 1962 when Pete Best is fired from the Beatles, which causes an uproar with their fans. People are mad, especially at one of the places they play most often, the Cavern Club. There are a few different theories about why Pete Best is replaced in the band, but some evidence points to the reason that Best was the best-looking member of the band. And some of the other members of the band didn't quite like that. Okay, but he was properly labeled. (laughs) There's a particular incident in Manchester, which supports this particular you're too good looking theory. Mm -hmm. Pete was accidentally cut by a wild fan wielding scissors trying to cut off a piece of his shirt for a souvenir. Oh boy. So naturally scared, the band returned to the tour bus And Pete was immediately lectured for showing up the boys.
1: Can you imagine approaching your favorite band with like a knife to?
0: I want to cut your clothes. That's not weird at all. No
1: way that that is
0: good planning. Got some jagged little scissors here. Yeah, for real. All right. So it is just two months later that Ringo will replace Pete. Now, A lot of other people just attribute the decision to fire Pete best because he was a lousy drummer. Hmm. He's just kind of a mediocre drummer. He may be good looking, but his skills aren't that extraordinary. I'm going to let Beatles fans out there decide what you want to believe. That is not my pond to throw a rock into in a biography of Pete best though. Author Spencer Lee writes, unfortunately in circumstances still clouded in mystery, Pete Best was dismissed from the group he had played with for over two years. The real reason was never given to Pete. The rest is legend. Whatever the real reason, it is fortunate for our Ringo Starr, who will join the Beatles as their drummer in August of 1962. That first performance, though, was really rough, right? So they're at the Cavern Club, and all the loyal fans of Pete Best are heckling, yelling, Throwing fruit. I'm just mm-hmm. kidding. They weren't really throwing fruit. You don't know. <laughs> Paul tries to do some crowd control. Sure. But he's unsuccessful in calming the upset fans. Now a few fans are starting to threaten Ringo. It's a terrible first night.
1: I. This is like honky tonk stuff, you know, where you have to put like chain link in front of the stage. Beer bottles don't come But through. his
0: friend George Harrison,
1: right? Mm-hmm. George mm-hmm. is
0: like, I'm going to stick up for you. And there's this one guy who's much bigger and George Harrison gets involved, and for his effort, he gets a black eye. Wow. Protecting his friend, Ringo Starr. Amazing. Wow. Like, British clubgoers in the Cavern club 60s were not playing dance. around. So although the transition was certainly not smooth at first, fans eventually come around and see that Ringo's a pretty good drummer, and he'll be accepted as a member of the beloved band. That's Ringo's backstory. Liverpudlians calm down. <laughs> Let's meet Ringo's first wife, Mary Cox. She's born on August 4th in 1946, also in Liverpool. Mary is an only child who leaves school at 14 to become a hairdresser and will change her name to Maureen at the same time friends call her Mo. Maureen loves music. Hanging out in clubs where all the live music is getting played. One of her favorite clubs is The Cavern. And it was there that she sees the coolest new band in Liverpool playing. Maureen's a regular at the Cavern Club, and she'll remember the long lines to get in, as well as all of the aggressive behavior barroom brawls from the fans. She'll say, I never joined the queue until about two or three hours before it opened because it frightened me. There were fights and rows amongst the girls. And when the doors opened, the first ones would tear in, knocking each other over. But alas, Maureen is a young girl in Liverpool, so like every other Cavern Club patron, Moe quickly becomes a huge fan of the Beatles. Moe even once kisses Paul McCartney for a bet, but he's not the one that she had her eye on. Moe naturally thinks all of the four band members are pretty cute, but it is the drummer, mm-hmm. Ringo Starr, that Moe really mm-hmm. likes. And one day she decides to ask him for his autograph. Ringo Starr will later admit he has no recollection of their first meeting, but three weeks after that, asking him for an autograph, Ringo notices her at a different show at the Cavern, and within just a few weeks, the two are dating. It's 1963. Maureen is 16 years old. Okay. Now, the Beatles in 1963 had not yet become famous, but as their popularity grew and they become more widely known, Maureen becomes an object of hatred from their fans. This is so weird. All right. Maureen is threatened by female fans. She's even attacked. Ironically, now you ready for the flip side of this? Do tell. Maureen is the one that's answering all the fan mail that gets sent to Ringo. Mm. So she's writing letters back to all these girls who hate her guts. Oh, my God. Thanks, Sally, for your letter. At Love, Ringo. Sixteen, seventeen. 17.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, my God poor
0: woman <laughs> in 1964 the pressures of the increasingly famous band schedule and popularity will cause Ringo and Mo to break up in June 1964 the day before leaving for their international tour Ringo collapses during a photo session for the Saturday Evening Post at the hospital it's determined he had a 102 degree fever Yikes. and tonsillitis he's sick mm-hmm. Ringo how can we help you He says, I need Maureen by Mm -hmm. my side. Mo will visit the hospital every day and help Ringo recuperate, bringing him ice cream. And by the time he recovers, the two off-again lovers are now back on again. In January of 1965, Maureen learns that she's pregnant. And the couple decide to get married the following month. Ringo is advised not to get married by everyone who knows him because they thought it would put a damper on his fame as a teen idol. Mm -hmm. Ringo doesn't care. It is February 11th, 1965, when Ringo and Maureen are married at the Caxton Hall Registry Office. The Beatles' manager, Brian Epstein, will serve as best man and host a reception for them at his home. Hmm. Hearts break across the world. There's even a band, Angie and the Chicklets, record a song, Treat Him Tender, Maureen. Oh my god. In honor of their marriage.
1: Much pressure? Okay.
0: Tony Barrow is the Beatles press officer, and he will describe Maureen this way. She was the least worldly of the Beatles women folk in the 60s. She was less glamorous than McCartney's girlfriend, Jane Asher less famous than Harrison's wife, Patty Boyd, and not nearly as smart as Cynthia Lennon. But she was chirpy with an irreverent sense of humor, and she suited Ringo right down to the ground. Oh, that's cool. Isn't that such a nice thing? Yeah. On September 13th, 1965, the couple will welcome their first child, Zach Starkey. On the same day, the single Yesterday was published. Mm. Ringo and Mo go on to have two more children during their marriage, Jason in 1967 and Lee in 1970. There's a friend of Maureen's, Chris O'Dell, describes her as a character who got along with everyone. She wasn't afraid to be her own person. She dressed the way she wanted to, spoke the way she wanted to. Her loyalty was one of her deepest qualities. Journalist Maureen Cleave will describe Maureen and her relationship with Ringo this way. She doesn't talk much, but what she does say is sensible. She adores him and calls him Richie. They always sit very close side by side, and Ringo always lights two cigarettes simultaneously, one for her and one for him. Maureen is best friends with Cynthia Lennon, at the time married to John, also enjoys a close friendship with... Patty Boyd Harrison, who yeah. will marry George. Mm-hmm. These couples often go on vacation together. they spend holidays together. I mean, where else like who else can they be friends with? Every woman hates them. <laughs> They're friends with each other. Maureen and Cynthia will confide in each other and go out shopping. They, you know, they have a good friendship. Early in the marriage, Ringo promises Maureen that he would take his fame and money. And set up for his beautiful wife a national salon business for her. Hmm. So she could do hair and oversee other hairstylists across the country. Hmm. But kids come along. Sure. The Beatles, kind of a popular, famous band. I've heard of them. Busier than ever. Sure.
1: A little bit of travel.
0: (laughs) This plan eventually gets shelved. So... Instead, Maureen, in addition to taking care of kids, she will continue being extremely active in the Beatles fan club, answering many fan letters, even until the band breaks up. Hmm. And although Maureen really does enjoy raising their children and occasionally going out on the road with the band, she does miss having a career of her own. As it does, the novelty of the wealth and the fame will wear off and, Maureen will spend evenings waiting with the other Beatle wives and girlfriends at clubs like the Speakeasy, the Ad-Lib, or the Scotch of St. James. You can visualize this picture. She's staying up half the night with a home-cooked meal for Ringo, who's recording in the middle of the night after long recording sessions. She's left alone with the kids while the Beatles are performing. Yeah, I feel like. We tell a version of this story quite a bit on this show. Easy to see how she feels lonely yeah. and a little bit neglected. Overwhelmed. For her birthday in 1968, here's a fun spiderweb Frank Sinatra will playfully rework the song The Lady is a Tramp for Maureen. The new lyrics he sang to her included She married Ringo and she could have had Paul. That's why the lady is a champ. <laughs> <laughs> But all is not well in the Starkey marriage. Ringo is having increasing issues with alcohol abuse. He has a string of infidelities. In 1968, Ringo becomes so fed up with his bandmates during the recording of the White Album that he quits the Beatles. He walks out of Abbey Road Studios and takes refuge on Peter Sellers' yacht. Because naturally, that's where you go when you want to hide out I mean, is the yacht of Peter Sellers. That's where I would go. It is during this brief hiatus that he will write his song, The Octopus's Garden. I love that song. Which will appear 82. on the Beatles' Abbey Road album in 1969. Mm-hmm. The reunion, though, is short-lived because by the time Maureen and Ringo's daughter Lee was born, the marriage is in major trouble. Yeah, It was a rough year for everyone involved. 1970s, also the year the Beatles broke up. Hmm. Everything's kind of yeah, coming apart. gotcha. But the Beatles, 1970, dissolve, and it's in 1971 that Ringo and Maureen will purchase John Lennon's home in Tittenhurst Park in Berkshire, where they will move their young family there. Let's get back together as a family, see if we can stitch this back together.
1: Yeah, kind of out
0: in the country a bit and away from, that has to have been, like, the decade of the
1: 60s for all members of the Beatles must have been this incredibly, like, pressure cooker and highs and lows kind of experience. I
0: so stay in that pressure cooker. Okay. As the problems are just starting. Okay. In 1972, Marina's going to go visit George Harrison. Oh no. Who is married to Patty Boyd at the time. Yeah. To get, you know, a little bit of help from a friend discussing sure? the issues that she and Ringo are having. We all need a little help from our friends. Well, George Harrison helped Maureen ride along in this visit, confessing his love for Maureen. (laughs) George and Maureen end up having an affair. Sure. Beatles wife swap. Okay. Now, (laughs) this is worse. Eventually, George Harrison just tells Ringo all about it. Oh, my God. So... Chris O'Dell, again, good friend of the Harrisons and the stars, author of Hard Days and Long Nights with the Beatles, The Stones, Bob Dylan, and Eric Clapton, will describe how it all goes down this way. We sat at the long wooden table in the kitchen, Ringo and George on one bench, Patty and I facing them on the opposite bench. Maureen spent the entire evening flitting around like a little bird, landing here, then there, jumping up to cook an omelet for Ringo, refilling our drinks, bringing plates of food to the table. Finally, Harrison turned to Starr with no concern that his own wife was sitting right there and said, you know, Ringo, I'm in love with your wife. Oh, my God. George. Ringo's response? Better you than someone we don't know. Oddly sensible? Process that. Better you than someone we don't know. Which I guess is... A I mean, I... That's a response. I guess if you're looking for the silver lining... Well, Patty Boyd, right a la Love Triangle with Eric Clapton, exactly. comes home a few weeks later after this and Patty Boyd finds George in bed with Maureen. Patty goes to Ringo and says, hey, I found them sleeping together. Ringo will threaten Maureen with a divorce. John Lennon gets wind of this situation and he is so mad. He will call Harrison's affair with Maureen... Quote, unquote, virtual incest. Wow. you Don't sleep with your bandmates. I mean. why? It's virtual incest, according to John Lennon. Sure. Despite extramarital affairs on both sides of the equation, Maureen is having him. Ringo's having him. Maureen doesn't want a divorce. So at the time, the couple stay together, but things do not improve. Ringo is having an affair with a model named Nancy Andrews that is very much made public. When it is made public, now Ringo and Maureen decide that it's time to split and they officially separate in July of 1975. Ringo and Maureen will have a brief attempt at reconciliation after Ringo breaks up with Nancy Andrews, but despite that. That's, that's a lot of water under the bridge at that point. Yeah, it, um, yeah, the writing's on the wall. I think maybe, um, maybe the bridge is washed away yeah, by then. <laughs> bridge is out. Yeah. <laughs> The bridge is burned and the bridge is out. (laughs) On July 17th, 1975, the divorce of Ringo Starr and Maureen is finalized on the grounds of Ringo's affair with model Nancy Lee Andrews. Ringo Starr agrees to give Maureen custody of the children, a one-time payment of 125,000 pounds, along with 23,000 pounds a year. She's also awarded 2,500 pounds a year for each of the children. So probably in the mid-70s, probably it's not terrible. It's going to come back, though. Ringo Starr will later admit to several wrongdoings during their marriage and express remorse for those dysfunctional behaviors. In his own words, Ringo confesses that he had been, quote, a drunk, a wife-beater, and an absent father. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's
1: like the trifecta.
0: He will continue to say how much he regrets being neglectful and unfaithful to Maureen, but despite the clear marital problems, the divorce and the actual finalization of that causes Maureen to become deeply depressed. At one point, she is so distraught that she will drive a motorcycle into a brick wall in an unsuccessful attempt at suicide. That's really too bad. Ringo, not much better for the wear. he will go through his own major depression shortly afterward. In 1976... Ringo will suffer a complete emotional collapse while vacationing in Monaco. He ends up completely shaving his head and eyebrows and is asking to be checked for boils constantly. Hmm. Wow. Later, he'll admit that he had been feeling vaguely insane and drinking some new drink. It was a time when you either cut your wrists or your hair and I'm a coward. I feel like these are two people who could no longer be together, but clearly also... Being apart is really bad. you've been together since you're a teenager and yeah. now you're, yeah. you don't know how to be. and that's, that's rough. Okay. Okay. Here's a little... Okay, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Okay. But in 1980, Ringo Starr will meet actress Barbara Bach on the set of a film called Caveman. Barbara Bach started modeling in the 1960s. She's featured in magazines like Elle and Vogue. I think I saw Caveman. I think Uh, I remember Caveman being very funny. Okay. Barbara will move on to acting. In 1977, she becomes recognizable across the world. She's a Bond girl in The Spy Who Loved Me. Bach had been previously married and divorced. She married an Italian businessman, Count Gregorini di Savignano de Romagna. Oh, yeah. That's probably something like that. We're just going to call him Count Greg to make it easy. Count Greg and Barbara get married in 1968. Okay. They divorce in 1975. So by the time of 1980, Ringo is now 40 years old. He's taking a break from music to try out a little bit of acting. Sure. And he finds himself cast in this film Caveman alongside the beautiful Barbara Bach, who was 33. According to them and others, it is instant attraction and in the two begin a relationship right away. Just a few months into the relationship, they are convinced that they are meant for each other. Now, the couple doesn't really make any long-term plans to make their relationship official, but they are in a car accident together. And when this happens, they both realize they don't want to wait another day. They each have minor injuries, but just a few weeks after this car accident, they decide to marry. But alas! Marriage does not fix the problems that Ringo is having with his depression or addiction issues. He finds himself with a great deal of time on his hands. He's depressed, he's bored, and he has an almost endless supply of money at his disposal. I bet this will go well. Well, it leads to major alcoholism and drug abuse. He begins spending a lot of time around some notorious partiers in the scene, One of those Keith Richards. Mm, Yeah, that guy. Well, the aftermath of the unprecedented success of Beatlemania, along with his disappointing solo career, sets Ringo on a downward spiral and he becomes very self-destructive. By the mid-1980s, Ringo is downing a bottle of champagne for breakfast. This is the extent that his alcoholism reaches. He refuses to drive anywhere that's more than 40 minutes away because that's as long as he could be without a drink. Wow. Okay. My limit is 40 minutes.
1: Well, it implies, though, that he
0: pre-games and then hits the road as well, which all of, all of which is bad. Dangerous. Now, while Barbara Bach may have been Ringo's soulmate and they felt it made for each other mm-hmm. together, she was also a heavy drinker and drug user. Barbara's daughter from her first marriage said she liked going to boarding school because it allowed her to escape the drug's heyday. She went on to say that their trouble made me a better academic. I was always hidden away in a room reading because mom and dad were out of it. Wow. The alcohol and drug abuse is so serious that Ringo Starr has no memory of certain events or periods of time. He'll once say, I was drunk. I didn't notice. Some of those years are absolutely gone. I've got photographs of me playing all over the world, but I've absolutely no memory of it. I played Washington with the Beach Boys, or so they tell me. There's Mm. only a photo to prove it. There's a terrible day in 1988 where Ringo gets a horrible wake-up call that makes him realize that he's got to change his life. This is his recounting of the incident. I came home one Friday afternoon and was told by the staff that I had trashed the house so badly They thought there had been burglars and I had trashed Barbara so badly. They thought she was dead. Oh God. Terrible. Yeah. Fortunately, this is the turning point. Both Ringo and Barbara go to six weeks in rehab and have never returned to their drug and alcohol abuse. Ringo is now a teetotaler, prides himself on his clean eating, his sober lifestyle Uh, During this time, he'll also ditch his, this just makes my lungs hurt, his 60 cigarette a day habit. Wow. Two packs a It's three packs a day. Yeah, it's, wow. He will even find God. When did he have
1: time to drink?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Between 60 cigarettes a day? I don't know. Uh, He'll even find God at this time. Ringo and Barbara do not have any children together, but the two of them are still married. Wow. And in this month, April 2022, they are celebrating their 41st wedding anniversary. Good for them. Terrible redemption arc. In 1998, Ringo Starr will tell an interviewer, With God's help, I have not had a drink in nine and a half years. That's my whole story right there. And because of that, I'm doing this. I'm making records. I'm touring. I was so involved in just getting brain damaged. I wasn't doing anything. I had great ideas, many notebooks filled with notes. Some of them I can read, and some of them I just can't read. But I really didn't do anything constructive. It was all just good ideas. Now I'm trying to lead a constructive life a day at a time. Good stuff there, Ringo. In 2021, Ringo Starr will present Billie Eilish with Record of the Year at the Grammys. But before presenting Eilish with the Grammy... He will address all of the nominees and say, if you're making music in our world today, you've already won. And I thank you. Yeah, and he was born in 1940. Is that, mm-hmm. Does that mean he's 82? 81, yes. 82? Wow. Yeah. Do you have a little bit of a follow-up about Maureen post-divorce? I was hoping. Okay. Maureen will move in with Hard Rock Cafe and House of Blues founder Isaac Tigret, in 1976. They welcome a daughter together in January 1987. And Maureen and Isaac will wait several years to marry, but they do eventually make it official. They get married in Monaco, May 27, 1989. In the meantime, Ringo and Maureen have become grandparents in 1985 when their eldest son, Zach, and his wife have a daughter. But in 1987, Maureen is going to sue the law firm that handles her divorce from Ringo hmm. for an alleged breach of contract and negligence.
1: Interesting.
0: She claimed that the firm had not fully investigated Ringo Starr's finances at the time of the divorce and had not given her a proper settlement.
1: Oh, the numbers did seem low even bit. even when you like adjust to pounds and time travel. Like it
0: that It doesn't work out for her though. Okay. The court will find in favor of the law firm and say that Starr was a generous man. Why is this? He increases her yearly payments two times since their divorce. Mm-hmm. The judge further orders Maureen to pay the whole bill for the case. So not only does she lose, but she has to fork out 200,000 pounds wow. for the court bill. I
1: mean, it's, uh, it's uh, there are arguments. Rough justice. there are arguments
0: for that system. It does discourage frivolity. In 1994, at the opening of House of Blues, Maureen suddenly faints. And at first, it's thought that she's merely suffering from anemia. But soon, she is diagnosed with a form of leukemia. Maureen undergoes every treatment available. But sadly, on December 30th, 1994, Maureen Starkey Tigret dies at the young age of 48. Oh, that's so sad. Her husband, her four children... Her ex-husband, Ringo Starr, are all at her bedside when she dies. Following her death, Paul McCartney will write a song called Little Willow in her memory, which appears on his 1997 album, Flaming Pie. It has a dedication to her children. It's really a very touching, touching song. Bend little Willow, wind's gonna blow you hard and cold tonight. Life as it happens. Nobody warns you. Willow, hold on tight. That is the trashy divorce of Ringo and Maureen. I did not realize that he dealt with substance misuse so heavily. Significant, significant substance misuse, which is good on him. I mean, he's had a completely different life since getting clean. Sure. I really can't imagine
1: how deforming it must be to be a member of the Beatles in your twenties. Like it, too much. The rest of your life is just...
0: Mind-blowing.
1: Yeah. So, good story. As trash cans go... Went places. I
0: know. It really was... I told got, you it was going to be got on a little, mind. Got a little tear there at the it's end. It's a great story. It turns horrible. It turns kind of greatish at the end. It gets a little bit better as we get back to the end. Sure. As trash cans go, I don't know. I mean, Maureen, maybe... Don't sleep with George Harrison. (laughs) Maybe George Harrison, don't tell your bandmate about it in front of your wife. My God. Uh, You know, it's it's a
1: lot. It It seems like
0: a lot of problems for the staff. There's certain trash cans. Maybe they're all on Abbey Road and filled with apples. I don't (laughs) know from Apple Studios unclear on that it's it's all a little murky but it could just be the drugs and all the cigarette haze that I can't move through
1: yeah maybe maybe like it's fewer trash cans than she would have had with better
0: lawyers who knows (laughs) (laughs) that is the last of the Beatles for Trashy Divorces Mm -hmm. been Mm -hmm. waiting on that one for a long time when we come back from a quick break we're gonna shoot the arrow we are launching some arrows at you over to your side yeah see you on the flip
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new
0: podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences.
1: Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are, rather than podcasts on? Yeah,
0: podcast your, your,
1: your, your podcasting apparatus? Watching on the YouTube. He's aging himself.
0: If you have been thinking about your financial situation, if you've been brewing questions you would like to ask a financial professional, if you would like some guidance on addressing debt, investing, or other general financial organization, then in the immortal lyrics of Amy Ray. I said it's time. Don't assume anything, just Just go, 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 go.
1: to theoaktreegroup.net. There you will find the contact information for three holistic financial planners that have been working together for over 17 years. Kelly, Eileen, and Ellen will tailor a financial strategy
0: for your unique goals and circumstances. You can also give them a call at 770-319-1700 to schedule your free one-hour consultation. They would never use your years to psych you out.
1: Again, the phone number is seven seven zero three one nine one seven zero zero, And the website is www.theoaktreegroup.net.
0: Go, go, go. So, Stacey, you're bringing us a story from the Marvel Universe today.
1: <laughs> yes, a marvel of a tale, it turns out. So, uh, one story that gets requested quite a bit, in a lot of ways, comes with more questions than answers. First of all, when this couple married, they made no public announcement about it for months. But when they broke up just a couple of months after spilling the beans, all hell kind of broke loose. And now every 18 months or so, it seems like Marvel's Hawkeye, the actor Jeremy Renner, is back in the news addressing allegations made by his ex-wife, Sunny Pacheco.
0: Welcome to Trashy Divorces, Welcome to
1: Trashy Divorces, friends. The sticking point for them is that they are co-parenting a little girl. But it's worth noting that they split up at the end of 2014 and seven or eight years on seems like a long time to stay embroiled in a court fight with your ex.
0: Wow, that is a long time. It's a long time. Let's
1: get into this with the caveat that we do our best to avoid naming celebrities minor children. There are are a lot of quotes in here, but I'm gonna do my best to sub in like, kid, daughter, child, that kind of thing. This kid certainly did not ask to have a famous dad, right? That just happened.
0: Did you hear about my dad? He's a superhero.
1: Jeremy Lee Renner was born January 7th, 1971 in Modesto, California. Oh, Capricorn, man. The eldest child of two young lovers who had married as teenagers. What could go wrong? Weirdly, it went wrong. Marrying very young did not end up creating a union appropriate for who they were as they became real adults. And when Jeremy was 10, they divorced. He's the oldest of... I've seen this two ways. Wikipedia says seven children, while Details Magazine in 2011 said five. Anyway, what is not in doubt is that in the year 2011, when Jeremy Renner was 40 years old, he became a big brother for the last time. Presumably his father had remarried. Still, doing,
0: still doing the love mm-hmm. thing, man. Good on you.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, baby brother born when he was 40. That's a... Anyway, quite an age difference. So I am going to let Adam Sachs at Details Magazine from 2011 set all this up, because unlike a lot of Hollywood stars, Jeremy Renner did not smash onto the scene as a young adult and grow into middle age in the public eye. His road was a lot more interesting. This is Sachs. Renner grew up with a pygmy goat named Sugar. He's the oldest kid with four siblings who range in age from 37 years to four months, he and his best friend, the actor Christopher Winters, whom he also confusingly refers to as My Brother, run a successful side business renovating houses. Sometimes he lives in the houses during construction, often without such bougie comforts as electricity and indoor plumbing. Disciplines he's studied include, but are not limited to, world religion, sociology, criminology, Filipino stick fighting, and Mai Thai martial arts previous professions, ski instructor, professional makeup artist. He has taught himself to be unafraid of sharks. He has dined with Colin Powell and has regularly basked in the praise of such luminaries as Sean Penn, but about the only time he's found himself starstruck was when he met Caesar Milan, TV's dog whisperer. He is, by turns, cut the bullshit intense and just fucking with you funny. He's religiously unsentimental, quote, I don't give a shit about the past, and unabashedly devoted to his cream-colored, miniature French bulldog, Franklin. These are some of the facts that you may collect in your net while standing in the riptide current that is a casual conversation with
0: Jeremy Renner. He sounds like a real renaissance man. Really
1: does. I love that uh, Adam Sachs piece. All of our sources, as always, are at TrashyDivorces.com. Jeremy Renner graduated high school in Modesto in 89 and headed to Modesto Junior College. He was filling out his schedule one term and he just picked up drama as an elective he was studying computer science and criminology i think were the not sure what he was intending to go do with that but in this drama class the acting bug bit him hard i mean it left a welt a scar he continues to be scarred but success did not come easily to him he spent the 90s in small roles as you would expect and to make ends meet he had a side hustle as a makeup artist at the Lancôme counter at a Modesto mall. Fantastic. His first notable role was playing serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer in 2002's Dahmer, which did boost his profile and it earned him a nomination for the Independent Spirit Award for Best Lead Male. I wouldn't say things snowballed from there, but the roles he started to win and the casts he began to join steadily advanced in prominence, I guess would be one way to put it. But again, this was O2. It was not until 2009 in The Hurt Locker that the trajectory of his life and career completely changed. This is a full 20 years after throwing his lot in as an actor and against all odds and just not just through sheer stick His portrayal of a bomb disposal expert during the Iraq War earned him a Best Actor nomination for the Academy Awards and at the Screen Actors Guild. Pretty big deal. Back to that Sachs piece in Details Magazine. There's something compellingly unusual about a guy who's been a working actor for two decades, working but struggling, and then rather suddenly finds himself a leading man with his pick of major franchises. Here he is jumping off buildings opposite Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Next, he's leathered up as the arrow-slinging Hawkeye in the Joss Whedon-helmed superhero supergroup The Avengers alongside Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man, Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow, Chris Hemsworth, Thor, and Samuel L. Jackson, Nick Fury. Then he's out for vengeance in the just-wrapped action comedy, Hansel and Gretel, Witch
0: Hunters.
1: (laughs) Quote, that was a blast, Renner says. It's 15 years later and they're pissed off. They're bounty hunters killing witches for a living.
0: Interesting.
1: I know, I need to go check that out. Okay, so this kind of gets us to the modern situation that is Jeremy Renner. He seriously paid his dues, he stuck to it, even as it spawned his extremely successful side enterprise as a house flipper. Like, he flips multi-million dollar properties in the LA area. Uh, mm -hmm. Another interesting thing about those two decades in relative obscurity is that he never married or, as far as I can tell, had any sort of high-profile bromance, although when it comes to his personal life, I think high-profile is exactly the opposite of what he's going for. That said, a former acting coach of Jeremy Renner at some point during those struggle years mentioned to a reporter that Jeremy is gay, prompting decades of speculation. Uh. He's denied it, always stressing the importance to him of a truly private life, and I think kind of wishing we lived in a world where he could be both a famous actor as well as a normal person, and that is not the world we live in. In any case, suddenly very famous... He was also to meet a woman who would become the mother of his and hers, of course, I'm not sure why we phrase it that way, child, briefly his wife, and then an ex-wife that even an experienced vengeance demon would be pretty impressed by at this point in time. And I'm not saying that as a dig, one way of looking at what's happened in the aftermath is that Sonny Pacheco has been vigorously protective and is trying to keep her kids safe from an out-of-control father, but we'll get to that. It was apparently on the set of Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol that Jeremy and Sonny met back in 2010. The relationship led to a baby in 2013 and in 2014, without alerting the media, Jeremy and Sonny walked down the aisle together. Sonny Pacheco is a Canadian-born model about whom there is considerably less biographical material on the internet than her more famous ex-husband. She was probably born in 1991, making her 20 years younger than Jeremy. And may have grown up on a farm in British Columbia. Sounds nice. She came south at a young age. Very, very south, it turns out. Her bio says that she sold timeshares in Mexico for four months when she was 19 years old. Huh. But she came to the States and resumed or began, not clear, modeling. Ending up as a brand ambassador for Monster Energy Drinks. And she had a couple bit parts in movies, which I think is how she was with the ghost protocol. Milieu. Apparently, she and Jeremy met when Ghost Protocol was filming in Vancouver, the greatest city in the world. But their relationship was kept private, as noted. In fact, when Jeremy announced that he was becoming a dad, he described the situation as quote an ex-girlfriend is pregnant and had moved in with him and his roommate, house-flipping business partner and fellow actor Christopher Winters. Huh, huh. It's very interesting. Indeed. Indeed. Go on. Go on. What? What? Quick timeline here. Their daughter was born March 2013, and on January 13th, 2014, they wed. And on December 30th, 2014, Sonny filed for divorce, citing our old favorite, irreconcilable differences.
0: One year tip to toe. Really? Yeah. New Year's Day to the end of the year? No, they married January 13th. They filed for divorce. December 30th?
1: Yeah, and it's all possible... All inside of one year, that's what I'm saying. It's all inside of one year. Okay. December 30th may have just been when the news broke. Like when someone noticed in legal filing that it may have been earlier in December even. It's been described as a 10 and 11 month marriage is how it's often written out. But the baby came like a year earlier. So That's very fast. The world didn't find out they had married at all until a September... 2014 interview with capital file Oh, right before they announced the divorce yes i mean it's i know this is so weird where in a moment perhaps of fatherly bliss he spilled the beans here's the passage this is from an interview by elizabeth e thorpe from 2014 she says tell me about fatherhood you have a baby daughter does she live with you are you married to her mother and his answer is yes smiling So Thorpe says, I did not know that. Congratulations. How come nobody knows that? And Renner says, I've tried to protect my family's privacy, my wife's privacy. I don't need her to get hammered with my life. Privacy issues are important because I want her to go about her day without being bothered.
0: Very nice. Totally makes sense.
1: Yeah. So Thorpe asks, do you get bothered a lot? And he says, yeah, paparazzi follow me. And that's fine. But It's annoying being followed when I'm with my family. It's not just me. Everyone in Hollywood has to deal with that. I've been talked about a whole lot because the less I put out there, the less people know, and it makes it interesting, I assume. So she goes on to say, uh, how do you think that fatherhood has changed you? And I mean, he positively gushes about fatherhood, like any time it comes up. It's, It's actually very sweet to watch. He says, it's the best thing I've ever done, doing it later on in life. By then, I achieved a lot of things that I wanted to achieve. I'm so blessed for that. Now I can really spend time with the family. The only thing I think about when I'm not with my baby is, how do I get to my baby? I need to get to her, and I'm very miserable when I don't see her. I really love being a father. The only thing that has changed is my perspective on things. I still work, probably even more. It used to be for myself, so I'm not old and broke. All these things I still do, but I do it now for the future of my baby, and if it gets in the way of her well-being, then I stop. So he goes on to say that she's 17 months old and he thinks it's the greatest age and he can't wait for her to get older, but she's so much fun now and that she's into her sticker phase, which is just, anyway. That's so nice. It really is nice. Yeah, I think he went on Ellen and talked about how being a dad is the best role he's taken yet. You know, like he's he really just lights up when his kid comes up, which is, that's great. This is from a Nikki Swift piece called The Double Life of Jeremy Renner by Andy Scott and Mariel Loveland. Incidentally, Jeremy Renner and Sonny Pacheco's brief marriage played out a little like Three's Company. The reason, their home included a roommate, Christopher Winters, whom the Hollywood Reporter described as Renner's, quote, live-in business partner, and whom Renner described as my brother in a 2012 profile. Winters wound up playing a key role in Renner's divorce from Pacheco by providing pretty damning testimony against Renner's now ex-wife. Quote, On approximately eight additional occasions at our Franklin Avenue home, Sonny told me that she did not believe in marriage and only wanted Jeremy to marry her so she could become a United States citizen and avoid returning to Canada. Oh. Winters said, according to court documents, Quote, I heard Sonny say at least five or six times when we were together at the Franklin house that Jeremy should be nice to her and not fight her on green card or money issues, or else she would release intimate videos of him to TMZ. Winters also alleged that he saw Pacheco regularly smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol while pregnant. Pacheco obviously has denied the substance use claims, uh, but Nikki Swift writers note that she did not address his extortion claim, so that's interesting. Sunny, meanwhile, alleged that Jeremy had stolen a number of her important documents, including her passport, her birth certificate, her social security card, and she wanted the court to make him hand them over and, quote, be restrained from making further efforts to conceal same. There was a prenup in place, but she asked that it be invalidated, you know, after 10 months due to fraud, but sadly for us, she did not choose to expand on what fraud might mean in this context in the filing, so more the pity on that. Sonny also expressed concerns about their daughter's safety, alleging that Jeremy has an extensive gun collection that is not always housed in a gun safe, and that a pool and pond on his property weren't fenced, which would pose a drowning hazard for their then, like, almost two-year-old. These are fully reasonable, like, that Yes, Makes a
0: lot of sense.
1: Firearms in a gun safe. And yeah, keep the like some barrier to keep the kid away from water. Like, got it. I think this was worked out. And the reason I think this is worked out, they managed to hammer out a settlement agreement in the first half of 2015, which is kind of light speed as these things go. And People Magazine reported that they had joint legal and physical custody of their child with Jeremy paying $13,000 a month in child support zero in spousal support, all good, right? Well, no, because 13 months later, Sonny headed back to court to allege that Jeremy was almost $50,000 behind on child support, and further, he was refusing to pay his half of their then three-year-old $1,600 a month preschool costs. His lawyers fired back that he had paid several hundreds of thousands of dollars in support that year alone, was not behind, and that the divorce decree did not require him to pay part of the preschool costs.
0: Yeah, 13000 a month is $156,000 a year. If mm-hmm. my math is correct, it's pretty significant. For a two-ish year old.
1: Yeah. It's... it's <sighs> this dust-up ended early in the fall of 2016 when Jeremy agreed to give Sunny $16,000, like much less than the 50000 that she was saying. 16000 in support plus... And here's a kicker, $24,000 to pay off her lawyers and accountants who had, of course, brought this matter before the court. That is a bad incentive structure. I understand why it exists, but that's a bad incentive structure. Let's jump ahead, something like a year and a half to April of 2018, when Sonny again headed back to court, pointing out that Jeremy's Marvel salary, $11.4 million that year, made their old agreement moot. Now, this is a feature of extremely high-dollar divorces that I feel a little queasy about. Typically, child support is calculated as a percentage of the higher-earning parent's income. Non-custodial higher-earning, I guess. It's complicated, but in any case, this makes sense. But what percentage of $11.4 million does a five-year-old kid need to thrive? It's, Wa- a, qu- walk it's me- a question. Walk me through this. like. It just seems like the formula should not necessarily apply. Like The agreement they came to was that he would fork over an additional $292,000 in child support that year. But for the years 2018, 2019, and 2020, any amount over 200000 would go into an education savings account for their daughter. And if upon completing her education, there was money left over in that account... It would be held in trust until
0: she turned 27 all of this is very smart right this is there are... i want to make sure you don't get my largesse exactly it goes to the kid right we agreed on
1: zero spousal support right so this is not your money this is her money but then twists and turns this is like a superhero story almost okay word of a super disturbing november 2018 incident came out which has shaped a lot of the contours of the ongoing on-and-off custody disputes. InTouch Weekly had the story as told by former Jeremy Friend, the artist Lily Faget. According to her, she took a very inebriated Jeremy home after they'd hung out with a group of friends at an L.A. bar, and she walked him in to make sure he got in okay. Then, and this is where the story begins, He got into the safe, took a gun out, cocked it, Faget recalls. It was loaded, which I wasn't even sure of at the time. He was waving it around, gesticulating. I was standing really close to him, but for some reason I didn't run away. I was really worried. He gestured around when he was talking and put it in his mouth and threatened to end his life. No. Faget says she realized that Jeremy's daughter was home, young child daughter, was home when her nanny confronted the actor And he allegedly shot his gun into the ceiling after the altercation. I just stood there, Faget says. I didn't run, which was weird. You don't really know how to act in that scenario. He still had the gun in his hand and I was scared. He said, no one is taking me seriously. I said, I'm taking you very seriously. Please put the gun down. He put the gun down and I was panicked. Faget says the last time she communicated with Renner was after he filed a declaration in court about the 2018 shooting incident In it, he claimed Faget was under the influence that night and denied most of her version of the incident. Huh, interesting. Mm -hmm. She believes Renner continues to get away with his dangerous lifestyle because he surrounds himself with people who enable him and are enamored with his fame. So she herself has gone into therapy and hopes that one day her now former friend Jeremy will as well. So that's got to be the worst of it, right? Like gunplay... Shots fired in the house with a, mm-hmm. The following fall, Sonny asked for full custody and the Jeremy's visits with their daughter be supervised because she claimed that while he was drunk and high on cocaine at an L.A. nightclub, he told someone he, quote, could not deal with Sonny anymore and he just wanted her gone.
0: Oh, no.
1: And that the nanny overheard him saying that he would drive to Sonny's house and kill her and then kill himself because, quote, It was better that their daughter had no parents than to have Sonny as a mother. Oh,
0: no, 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 no.
1: She also said he had left cocaine on a bathroom
0: counter where
1: the girl could find it. Not that she did, like, she wasn't alleging that the girl did find it, just that it could have been found there. Jeremy responded with basically the same ask. This was almost mocking her, which seems, I don't know. So he... No judge, actually, I would like full custody and supervised visits only for my ex-wife over there. And he further alleged that she had sent nude photos of him to their custody evaluator to embarrass him. By this point, Sonny had transitioned out of modeling and had begun a career as a sculptor. So Jeremy complained that her work was far too explicit and that their daughter shouldn't be exposed to, quote, "...such dark, graphic, sexual material on a daily basis." I don't think he cared, but... You gotta counter
0: with something. Yeah.
1: Next, Sonny said that Jeremy had bitten their child while angry. This is still October 2019, by the way. Which he denied, saying that her seatbelt had pinched her, and it was, like, nothing. Things only got more complicated when the coronavirus swept in in 2020. With his projects on hold for the foreseeable future, he headed to court for once asking that his child support payments be reduced from $30,000 a month, reported, to a mere 11000 a month. The child was six, at this point, six years old. Sunny insisted in a press statement that no how, no way did she receive $30,000 a month in child support and that all of her and her daughter's savings had been siphoned by lawyers in the endless battle against her ex on behalf of the child's safety it is classic divorce stuff
0: games people play
1: this i don't even know who's playing the games there's such a power imbalance between these two people i i really don't know you know jeremy said that she was misusing their daughter's money she said that she was using the money for their daughter she asked a court to impose mandatory drug tests on jeremy the court declined to do that In November of 2021, Jeremy told Men's Health that he tries to just not respond, not fuel fires of what he described as, and I quote, nonsense. Sonny, meanwhile, describes events more as like a long season in hell, with a 2020 statement noting, "...I am sick of being continually bullied, having my name slandered, and the truth muted." Anyone who is a parent knows that the most important thing in the world is their child's health and safety. Over the years, it's hard to fathom what I've seen and what people have told me they've seen in regards to Jeremy's disturbing actions while our child is in his care. Friends, I have no idea where the truth lies in all of these allegations. My biggest thought really is just how exhausting it must be to live in this much conflict for years at a time. It is worth noting that the judge or judges involved in the case have not hindered anyone's custody. In, in, in this like screaming, this ongoing screaming match, judges have not been persuaded that either parent is a risk of hurting the child, which is great. It, it is worth considering though, Jeremy Renner has Marvel Studios behind him, right? Like if what she's saying is true, there are very powerful people in the powerful industry there to, to possibly protect him. And if what she's saying is false, that just sucks for him to just get hit with news stories like this all the time. Like, divorced people, man. Child custody.
0: That's quite a battle.
1: It is. And I, I suspect it's going to continue until... The child turns 18 or or whatever. I I don't think this is the last we're going to hear of this. Um, I do hope everybody can find their peace with the situation. I I don't know what's happened. I don't know how many trash cans to award a Marvel Studios full.
0: Less than a year of them.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes, 10 months of trash cans.
0: Well done. That's pretty terrible. It was requested... It's, it's tough. I don't. We hope you're happy, Amy. Um. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that one to us as we close out this week of Trashy Divorces, Stacey. Holy cats. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening this week. If you need more Trashy Divorces in the meantime, you can check us out at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Don't forget, if you're into old Hollywood, Laurel Canyon, now is definitely the week to tune in to my other little podcast, Done and Done. You'll have some happy listening over there.
1: We'll be back on Wednesday with an all-new Trashy Breakups. And until then, friends. Keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Big love, everybody. Have a terrific week. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia. With a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by
1: Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram.